They're leaving Venezuela in droves. Some walk an average of 16 hours a day for 13 days to reach their destination, and 90% of them sleep in the streets. Those without some kind of legal status face the gravest levels of exploitation and even human trafficking. This is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online, and we're talking about Venezuela's refugee crisis, a crisis that's unprecedented in Latin America. My colleague, Holly K. Sunderland, spoke with Tamara Tarasiuk Brunner, the author of a new Human Rights Watch report calling for a regional response to what's happening. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Focus. America Latina in Focus. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Well, Tamara, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. So you are the America's senior researcher and the lead researcher for Venezuela for Human Rights Watch. And you are the lead author of the new report, The Venezuelan Exodus, on the 2.3 million Venezuelans who have left their country since 2014, according to the United Nations. And at least half of that has happened in the last year and a half. So according to the UN, uh, about 300,000 are asylum seekers, a little under 600,000 have some other form of legal stay in various countries, which this means that the rest, so at least 1.5 million Venezuelans, uh, are in an irregular immigration situation. Do you have a sense of how big the undocumented population is in other countries? It's very difficult to know the exact number of Venezuelans that have actually fled. The 2.3 million, which is the number that the United Nations provides, is the bare minimum. In addition to that, you have people who have not yet requested legal status, are trying to get legal status, or may have gotten other types of permits because they married someone in another country. So there are different ways in which people may be legal or illegal in the country. And this is what makes the evaluation of the total assessment very difficult. What we do know is that those who do not have legal status to stay are in a much more vulnerable situation than others because they are exposed to sexual trafficking, human trafficking, um, exploitation, labor exploitation, and they are much less willing to report abuse to competent authorities. So that is something that we have seen and is very worrying. I know you did a lot of on-the-ground research for this. What's one of the stories that stands out to you of someone who's been subject to this type of exploitation? It's very difficult to choose, unfortunately. We've seen a lot of sad stories of Venezuelans fleeing the country. Um, and that's because the type of migration has changed. Um, a few years ago, you would see Venezuelans who could purchase a plane ticket and fly outside of the country, there was there was more high class, middle class um, people who could afford to leave and restart their lives. What you see at the border, both in Colombia and Brazil, are people who are fleeing with what they can carry. And they have to sell their fridge or their cell phones or their laptops to be able to purchase a bus ticket to the border. So when they get to these places, they are often subject 
to this sort of abuse. For example, I interviewed two young women who were in Kukuta. Um, they had been stolen. They were offered shelter by a person in Kukuta, and they realized that they were about to be sent to a sexual trafficking network because they happened to see a text message in this person's cell phone and they ran away. And we met them when they were walking away from Cúcuta. They, they were two of the many Venezuelan walkers we interviewed on the road that were heading out of Cúcuta. And according to the United Nations, there are approximately two to 300 Venezuelans who set out on foot from Cúcuta to other cities in Colombia or to Ecuador or Peru. And they walk for days on average. And they are one of the most desperate faces of the Venezuelan exodus. Yeah, you had some really remarkable numbers about the walkers in this report. You said that those who leave on foot walk an average of 16 hours per day and are expected to walk for about 13 days. And more than 90% of these walkers are sleeping in the streets. That is correct. Those are very, very sad stories of people that um, have to walk to their final destination. I would say that the other side of this desperation is clearly seen in Brazil, in the north of Brazil. Um, the state of Roraima, which borders Venezuela, now has 10 refugee camps. They are not called refugee camps, but they look very much like refugee camps that you're used to seeing in Europe with white tents with a UNHCR, which is the UN refugee agency signs. Um, and there you, we heard story after story of people who left because they did not have enough food to eat, they did not have enough money to purchase food for their families, or they had all sorts of illnesses that they could not cure in Venezuela. And they are living in these tents in very difficult conditions, but they say um, that they are better there than they were in Venezuela. Which is remarkable because especially in northern Brazil, that's where we've seen some of the most, the strongest xenophobic reactions against the Venezuelan uh, migrants. And there have been some pretty serious incidents. Yes, you clearly see how a very small town, Pacaraima, which is right on the border with Venezuela, is a town of 12 to 14,000 people. And we are seeing crossing that border into Brazil and staying more than 800 Venezuelans per day. So it's totally not justifiable, but it's understandable that such a small city cannot take in um, and give jobs to so many people. And the other aspect of immigration into Roraima that is a particular to that area is that this is a very a removed state. It's a state that has limited connection to the rest of Brazil let alone to the rest of the region. So a lot of the Venezuelans who cross the border, they don't really know that they're going to be stuck there um, because it's very hard to leave. And that's one of the main reasons why the UN Agency for Refugees has set up these 10 camps, is working on two more in an effort that is totally unprecedented in Latin America. There has not been a series of refugee shelters with these UNHCR tents or refugee unit housings that house more than 4,000 people in one location in the region. 
they have shelters in other places for specific vulnerable populations, but not to this extent um, in one same place for people from one nationality. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, certainly the northern Amazon is a very long ways away from Sao Paulo. It's actually just one road that connects Boa Vista, which is the capital city of Roraima, with the closest city, which is Manaus. It's either that or you fly out of Boa Vista. And most people who get there cannot afford a bus ticket, let alone an airfare. Mm-hmm. And so talking about these different populations in the different countries, you've um, accumulated some rather remarkable numbers. So in terms of, again, known Venezuelan migrants, there are close to a million people who went from Venezuela to Colombia in this time period, 400,000 in Peru, 250,000 in Ecuador, those are the top three, and then in the 50,000 to 100,000 range, you have uh, Chile, Argentina, the United States, Panama, and Brazil. So if there are the, typically the poorest populations are crossing by foot over these land borders, who are some of these other groups, or are there any other demographic breakdowns into who, say, is able to arrive in Peru, for example, versus uh, Spain? Well, you need to be able to get to Spain, right? You need to be able to afford a plane ticket and fly there. So um, that sets the bar much higher than having to cross the border. Um, Some people just, you know, get a ride to the border and cross with what they have and plan to rebuild their lives. Um, We do see people who take very long bus rides across the entire Brazil to get to Uruguay or Argentina, or people who got to Chile by crossing through the entire continent. So not it's not necessarily that people with less income stay in Colombia, but it's obviously much difficult to leave if you don't have anything to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I'm uh, curious as to what you've heard for when these migrants arrive in these different communities, what type of a situation they find on the ground. Obviously, we've talked about some where there's been some xenophobia, but are there other situations where they've found it easier? Um, What are the types of things they're running into on a daily basis? Well, the, the big difference is whether they can get legal papers to stay or not. Um, those countries that have provided special permits for Venezuelans, like Colombia, Brazil, or Peru, or Chile, provide a legal avenue, provide them with a work permit that helps them rebuild their lives. Even in some of these countries, we've seen some worrying setbacks, attempts by governments like Peru or Ecuador, who later backtracked, but they tried to request a passport to enter the country or to get the permits. And that's an unsurmountable hurdle for many Venezuelans. Today, it can take up to two years to get a passport in Venezuela. So, you know, there's one group of problems that people face when they have a legal avenue to stay, but sometimes it's expensive and they can't afford it, or they require papers that they couldn't bring from Venezuela and they can't get from abroad. Um, But I would say that generally speaking, in those countries where there is a legal avenue to stay and they can pursue it, the challenge is, you know, rebuilding your life in a country where you did not actually choose to leave, but you you feel in exile, getting a job and restarting and starting from a new. Um, It's much harder in countries where 
that legal status is nearly impossible to get. And I'm thinking more clearly in the Caribbean. Islands like Trinidad and Tobago or Curaçao that are very close, just a short boat ride away from Venezuela, are places where we are seeing uh, very harsh treatment against Venezuelan immigrants. They are being arbitrarily detained, deported, sometimes including people who sought asylum or declared interest of seeking asylum. Um, and that's where we've also seen strong incidents of xenophobia. And it's important to remember that these Caribbean islands have close political and economic ties with the Maduro regime. Because they have been receiving oil subsidies in the tens of millions of dollars for years through Petrocaribe. That's right. And if you recognize that this high number of Venezuelans who are arriving are refugees, you are acknowledging that they are fleeing persecution or a humanitarian crisis. And that's something that these governments are unwilling to do. So I want to shift now to the kind of the regional response, the governmental response. In your report, you focus on a set of three recommendations for the international community for how best to respond to the crisis. And the first one is a region-wide temporary protection plan that would give all Venezuelans legal status for a fixed period of time. Um, second, you recommend a regional mechanism to distribute the financial costs and the actual hosting of Venezuelans fleeing their country. And lastly, getting to the root cause of why Venezuelans are leaving, you recommend a coordinated strategy to adopt and enforce targeted sanctions, such as asset freezes and canceling visas for Venezuelan officials implicated in human rights abuses, and then for punishing accountability for those abuses. So talking about the sanctions, I know the US, the EU, and Canada have already issued a host of targeted sanctions. What additional sanctions do you see would be as most effective? Or what sanctions are you still waiting for? We're still waiting for the region to adopt that same sort of sanctions. Only Panama to date has adopted region specific targeted sanctions. Um, and these sanctions should continue from, you know, in the US and Canada, there are over 50 people that are subject to sanctions for corruption or human rights abuses. In Europe, it's 14. So there's a lot of room there to include more people in these lists and also in we would like the region to impose similar sanctions directed at Venezuelan officials. And I want to emphasize that because no one is thinking here about sanctions that could have a disproportionate effect on the Venezuelan population. No one wants Venezuelans to suffer more than what they are already suffering. So we're not talking about generalized sanctions here. We're talking about sanctions directed at key people that are implicated in grave human rights abuses. Now talking about these abuses, what cases and courts are you thinking of in particular where there might be a viable case for a prosecution? Well, the key actor here is the International Criminal Court. Um, in February 2018, the Office of the Prosecutor at the ICC opened a preliminary examination to look into the situation of Venezuela. It based its analysis on information that it received from several actors, including us, on abuses committed by Venezuelan security forces. And the purpose of this preliminary examination is to determine if there are sufficient grounds to move forward with a full investigation. There has been 
public information announcements by several governments in the region who have said that they will take the case of Venezuela to the ICC. This state referral, as it's called, would be the first time in the history of the ICC that a group of states request the court to look into the situation of a country. And that is likely to happen in the next few days or weeks. And it would be a very important step towards accountability. That's very interesting. Do you have any indication of what countries might be party to that case? The countries that have expressed interest in doing that are uh, Colombia, Argentina, Peru, Paraguay, and Canada. And you know that would likely lead to, it would send a very strong political message of support of the ongoing preliminary examination. Procedurally, with the state referral, the prosecutor can go directly into the investigation. If not, it needs to go to a panel of judges that should approve her decision to open the investigation. So speaking of, I mean, in just the upcoming weeks, there is a lot of activity right now on this issue of Venezuelan migration because it's becoming so acute. Um, Latin American governments just met in Ecuador to discuss the crisis um, and come up with a plan. So what were highlights that came out of this summit in Ecuador? The main highlight is that for the first time, the region is talking about this unprecedented migration crisis as a regional crisis. Um, and that's exactly what it is. And it should be treated as, as such. And that's an important step. You know, the fact that they are sitting at the table discussing this as a problem that requires a regional strategy is a good sign. Um, the declaration has important elements. The declaration they signed at the end of the Kida meeting, um, for example, they say that they will aim to recognize Venezuelan documents that have expired. Um, and that, you know, as we were saying, it's sometimes so hard to get a Venezuelan document that that's a good step to welcome Venezuelans. They recognize the need for increased humanitarian aid towards Venezuelans. Uh, two things that are missing, I think, um, what, what it, that's missing is a clear understanding that this is, we're talking about forced migration here. It's not people that are leaving for frivolous reasons and because they chose to do so. It's because they honestly feel they don't have an option. And that has to be clear when we talk about this problem. You know, that's the diagnosis that should be the basis of any solution. And then the other thing that is not, um, it, it's, it's really a, bad idea to consider that this can be solved by the Venezuelan government. One of the key points in the declaration is asking the Venezuelan government to help their people get documentation to be able to migrate safely. Venezuelan authorities are denying that this is a migration crisis. They say that the outflow is normal. Um, so including a requirement for Venezuelan authorities to do something to solve this, you know, it's really not understanding what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so then just after the Quito summit, there was an OAS meeting where they talked about the Venezuelan migration situation as well. And I know I saw a news item where they were calling on the Venezuelan government to let in international aid, which might seem at face value that that's kind of a lost cause. The government has been denying this problem you know, for years, except if it's to lay this international case to show that we're specifically asking the government to address this and it won't. Does that lay a better legal case then going forward? 
Well, it's important to keep making evident that the government is denying the crisis and the fact that no sufficient international aid is entering Venezuela and showing that people are offering aid and the aid is not arriving in the quantities that are needed to address the crisis is providing further evidence of the government's responsibility in this crisis. What's most noteworthy of the OAS meeting, I would say, is the later announcement by OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro, who said that he was going to create, and has just created actually, a working group to deal with this migration crisis. He's appointed someone to head the group. They are starting to work on it. Um, and that can be an important step to come up with concrete recommendations to implement this region-wide response. You know, our response, our recommendations are the ones that you mentioned earlier, uh, but there are a lot of things that need to be done. Like, for example, governments need to recognize Venezuelan university degrees in all the countries. That would facilitate Venezuelans' access to work. So that, those sort of measures are measures that could be included in this diagnosis by the working group that um, Secretary General Almagro has just created. So that's a promising initiative that is just getting started. I would say that the overall assessment of both the Quito and the OAS meetings is that there's an express recognition that this is a regional problem that needs to be addressed by the region as a whole. But now we need to go a step further and figure out what are the concrete steps that need to be taken by the region to do precisely that. One last question. I'm just curious, looking ahead, I mean, obviously there are very positive developments, but countries have their own internal problems. Sometimes good efforts don't lead to any actions in the end. What do you think will happen if the governments aren't able to put together and act on of a concrete plan for the Venezuelan migrants. Do you think there's a tipping point farther ahead or are we already at a tipping point? Well, it's very difficult to know. The only thing that I'm certain of is that as long as the Maduro regime continues to crack down on dissent, deny the humanitarian crisis, and the entrance of sufficient humanitarian aid to alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people, people will continue to flee. There's no way around that. And that's why our recommendations include not only measures to deal with the Venezuelans outside of Venezuela humanely, but also to redouble the pressure on the Maduro regime so that the root of the problem is actually addressed. And it's very important to have that in mind. In terms of the Venezuelan emigration, these measures are extremely important. And it's also, you know, we see this as an opportunity. Venezuela is a country that has traditionally received immigrants. A lot of people, including my family, went to Venezuela from fleeing dictatorships in South America or fleeing internal armed conflict in Colombia. And Venezuelans welcomed immigrants from different parts of the world in different times. Now we have the opportunity and the responsibility to help Venezuelans who need us to stand up for them. 
Yes. Well, that's all I have. Thank you again for your time with us and for the report, and we'll continue to keep sharing and keep our eyes out for more developments. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Gonzalez. Check the podcast description for the link to the Human Rights Watch report discussed in this episode. Find out more about ASCA's programs and content on Venezuela by checking the page for our Venezuela Working Group at as-coa.org slash VWG. The music in this episode was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If so, please leave us a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.